Thank you for clicking on this brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you're a returning guest, then you know that this is not our audio quality. I'm actually traveling right now and don't have access to my full kind of podcast setup. And if you are a new guest, then uh, definitely you'll feel some better audio quality during the later part of this podcast. The intro is kind of all I'm recording with this poor audio quality. But with that aside, um, I'm uh, very excited to bring in this episode. So we're going to be talking about body weight, specifically excess fat mass is a big component of our overall health and can be a significant factor in the development of many diseases. So, what do we do about the excess fat mass? Simply cut calories to lose weight? Is it really that easy? In this episode, we talk with Dr. Stefan Guine, who holds a PhD in neuroscience, followed by completing a postback in neuroscience of obesity and eating. He currently wears many hats, but primarily describes himself as a science communicator, being the founder of Red Pen Reviews, where you can find evidence-based discussions and kind of reviews of uh, various information and nutrition, a reviewer for examine.com, and also an editor for the Journals of Frontiers in Nutrition, among other endeavors. He's also the author of The Hungry Brain, which is named one of the best books of 2017 by Publishers Weekly, and named, quote-unquote, essential by New York Times Book Reviews. In this episode, we take a look under the table of our diets and our food patterns and see how the culture around nutrition has changed throughout the years, the influences behind our dietary patterns, and what we can do about our environments to promote better eating patterns. This episode is great. And if you enjoy, if you want to support the show, if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, if you're a repeat listener, then the best way to do so is by reviewing our show on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. So open up your player either right before this episode or right after if you enjoy it and leave us a five-star rating and leave a comment or review on what you enjoy about it. And with that, let's get into this podcast. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring to you Dr. Stefan Guillenay, as he... Uh, promptly kind of inform you how to pronounce his name. Definitely would have butchered that if I did not ask him. But we are going to be talking about the science behind kind of hunger and food, and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. And this is a unique outlook to nutrition because typically we talk like calories, diets, fad diets, all these kinds of things. And now we're going to take like another look at that and kind of look at some of the brain's responses and how kind of our food structure and environments were set up. So um, Dr. Guine, um, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks for having me on, Raghav. Can you tell me a little bit about how you fell into the world of nutrition science? I know you finished your PhD in uh, neuroscience and then did some on obesity and eating as a postdoc. How did you fall into this and what do you do now? Yeah, so I um, have been interested in health and nutrition for a long time. I just think it's important. I've always been focused on it. I think it's uh, an important building block to living a good life for a long time. And so I've always had sort of a, a personal interest in it. And I, um, for my PhD, I studied neurodegenerative disease in a, a neuroscience program. 
And I enjoyed that. And neurodegenerative disease is a, is an interesting topic and a good cause, but I ended up studying a disease that's not very common. And so I wanted to move into a field that was more impactful. And so I decided for my postdoc to kind of bring together my interest in health and nutrition with my interest in uh, neuroscience and study the neuroscience of obesity. And so I did a postdoc with Mike Schwartz at the University of Washington, studying a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is the part that regulates body fatness and trying to understand how that regulatory system changes in the context of obesity. Got it. If you don't mind me asking, what was that uh, disease that you were studying that's very rare? <laughs> it's called spinocerebellar ataxia type 7. It's, Got it. uh, yeah, it's a polyglutamine repeat disorder. So the uh, disease that is the most common member of that class of diseases is Huntington's disease. Got it. So we learn about a lot of those different things in medical school and they end up just being like kind of quick facts that you do on a test um, that you kind of memorize. And then the second you get into actual medicine, they kind of get thrown out the window unless that ends up being your field. So um, this is where a lot of that primary research comes from. Our main question on this podcast is uh, geared towards prevention and kind of nutrition, eating, behavior, and all that kind of lends itself into this. So I'm interested to ask you, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, so I'm not a doctor, so I'm. If you don't mind, I'm gonna step back and of kind of answer the question more broadly. What does prevention mean to me? Um, and to me, we've got a big problem in this country, the United States, as well as other affluent industrialized countries. In the United States, for example, the adult obesity rate right now is 43 percent. So 43 percent of people don't just carry excess fat mass, but carry enough to be classified as having obesity. And the lifetime obesity rate is over half the lifetime uh, risk of diabetes. In other words, that you would develop diabetes at some point in your life is nearly a third in the United States. So we're talking about extremely high levels of um, so-called diseases of affluence, diseases that are much less common in uh, non-industrialized societies, societies that live more similarly, more similarly to how our ancestors live, such as hunter-gatherers and subsistence agriculturalists. And so we're doing something wrong. <laughs> we're doing a lot right. You know, obviously we're doing a lot right as well, but we're doing something wrong and it has to do with the way that we're eating, the way that we're moving our bodies and, and probably a lot of other things as well. And so to me, prevention is about understanding what we can do with our diets and lifestyle to uh, not gain fat as much as most people do and not um, develop diseases at the same rate that most people do. And so I think a lot of that revolves around what we're eating. A lot of it revolves around how we're moving our bodies, how we're managing stress. And, um, but also some perhaps less appreciated things like what our food environment's like. I think, you know, as we'll probably discuss 
um, more in this episode, it's not just about what passes our lips. It's not just about the nutritional composition of the food that we're eating. It's about the context that that food is appearing in and how that is impacting the brain circuits that um, determine our eating behaviors. Exactly. I like how you bring up the uh, kind of disease of affluence because you don't see these typically as often or as prevalent in countries which don't have access to kind of food at your doorstep, easily accessible like um, apps to order whatever you want, whenever you want it at any time of the day, anything like that. Um, So we'll definitely talk about that a little bit later. I like that you brought that up. But obesity is more than just weight. Obviously, we're talking about um, a very complex disease. There's so much that goes into it as you're talking about societal factors as well. But there is a component of weight and everyone who's obese typically carries more weight than they should um, in the form of fat mass. And the question I have for you is that people have like their body weight varies as they age. Typically people start out in their teenage years and their early adolescent years closer to what would be a quote unquote normal weight. And then as time goes on, they kind of add weight. So Every, every time they go to the physician or whoever else, they say, oh, you need to lose some weight. But what is that weight set point? Is there an ideal weight uh, dependent on each individual? How do you find that? Yeah. So I think there are a couple questions here that we can uh, tease apart. So one question is the question of, is there an ideal weight? And I think that that depends on the perspective that you look, the answer to that depends on what your perspective is going to be. So, I mean, if we're talking about like, uh, clinically and physiologically, there are certainly some weights, or I should say body fatnesses that are much more desirable than others. In my opinion, I think being relatively lean from a health perspective is, uh, superior to carrying, you know, a substantial amount of excess fat. Um, in terms of particularly diabetes risk, but all the metabolic dysfunctions that are associated with diabetes, insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, uh, cardiovascular risk, and risk of many other disorders that come along with that. Um, However, I think there's a different question we can ask as well, which is, you know, for any particular individual who is at whatever weight they're at, what is what is the ideal weight that they should personally be striving to achieve? Because the problem here is that it's not so easy to modify your weight. And and most people know this who have tried to lose weight. People, for example, who have obesity and who have tried to become lean, uh, you know, two thirds of people with obesity try to lose weight each year in the United States. And so most people with obesity are trying to get leaner every year and they're just not achieving it. So it's not easy. So the question is, the question there is, what is the ideal weight? I mean, should that person just be like totally like pummeling themselves to try to lose as much weight as possible? I don't think so. I think that there is, I think that there's a balance that should be struck that maximizes quality of life is essentially my way of looking at it. So to me, in that scenario, your ideal weight is the weight that you can comfortably sustain that kind of strikes the best balance between your health and how you feel and how um, enjoyable and sustainable your diet and lifestyle are. So that's kind of how I see it in that context. Um, 
So then there's this other question of why do we gain weight over the course of our lives? Mm -hmm. And this is not a foregone conclusion. If you look at, uh, again, if we go back and look at non-industrial cultures like hunter-gatherers or subsistence farmers, we find that in many cultures, people do not gain weight as they age. They don't gain fat. If you look at skinfold thickness with age, mm -hmm. or if you look at body mass index, what you see is that it tends to peak around the peak reproductive years. And then it actually either stays stable in, in the case of fat mass or even declines in the case of body mass index with age. And so this like trajectory of people kind of gaining weight through maybe their 60s or 70s in a country like the US and then starting to decline as they become elderly is is not observed consistently in human populations around the world. So I don't think it's correct to think of that as like the you know human default pattern of body mm -hmm. composition change with age. Um, and so the question then becomes, why do we gain fat over time? And I think um, we don't have a complete answer to that. But one thing that is clearly happening is that this regulatory system in the brain that um, tries to maintain the stability of fat mass around a certain set point, as you mentioned, creeps up with age. So people with obesity, they're not just passively at a higher weight. They have a regulatory system in their brain that is regulating around that higher weight. So if they go from lean to having obesity, the obesity is kind of like the new normal to the brain in the same way that in fever, you have a regulated elevation of body temperature, uh, in certain other conditions, like some kinds of hypertension, you have a rel rel um, regulated increase in blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this defense of the elevated fat mass that we see in obesity that is a key characteristic of that state. And that makes it very difficult for those people to sustainably lose weight. A couple things I want to unpack from there. Number one is that I really appreciate the fact that you brought up that um, it's not necessarily about getting to that one number on a scale, quote unquote, as ideal weight. Like I have to get down to, let's say, 150 pounds from whatever you may be at. It's about maximizing your quality of life. And that's something that I stress a lot on this podcast. It's not all just about getting to this ideal quote unquote state. It's about living your life so that you can do what you enjoy, whatever that may be. If it's running marathons, playing with the grandkids, whatever it may be. So I like that you brought that up. And number two, I want to ask you a little bit more about that set point. So from when you're saying it sounds like it could be quote unquote impossible for someone to kind of that is an obese uh, person to lose weight and get to a non-obese state because of that quote unquote set point that you talked about because it physiologically becomes harder. If you start out leaner, like let's say you're a teen, like gaining weight throughout your uh, life cycle as we were talking about, something that set point keeps going up and up and up. And let's say someone's 40 years old, they wanna get back to their lean state to maybe um, practice prevention as they get into their 50s and 60s, reduce their chance of cardiometabolic disease if they didn't have it already. How do you get past that set point? Is it impossible or is it something that needs to be actively 
like tackled every single day or what do you do about it? So you're talking about if you're someone who already has obesity and you're trying yes. to lose weight. Yes. Yeah. Let's say like a 40 year old that's trying to get back to what they were maybe in their twenties or even thirties. Yeah. So I don't want to say it's impossible. It's clearly not impossible. Uh, there are people who do it, but I just think it's difficult to lose a large amount of fat and keep it off for a long period of time. And you know, there's abundant evidence to that effect. If you look at randomized controlled trials, what you find is, you know, you put people on a diet, they'll lose a certain amount of weight. And then generally over time, they will start to, to regain that. Um, now we have this new class of drugs, the GLP-1 receptor mm -hmm. agonists, particularly semaglutide, that tends to be a lot more effective than just uh, asking someone to follow a certain diet uh, and exercise regimen. But that's not to say that diet and exercise are not helpful. Um, I think that, you know, before semaglutide, it was about the best we had, um, aside from bariatric surgery, of course, which is highly effective. Um, and yeah, so, um, I think, I think there are things that can be done, but I think that if you're just doing a diet and lifestyle strategy, it's, you probably shouldn't set your sights on going from having obesity to being lean because most people are not going to achieve or sustain that. So, um, sorry to be pessimistic, but I think <laughs> that is just a fact that I think people should understand, but that doesn't mean that you can't lose weight. And it especially doesn't mean that you can't greatly improve your health because we have results from studies like the diabetes prevention program trial where they uh, put people on a diet and lifestyle program for weight loss. They lost 7% um, of body weight at uh, a few months in. And then by a few years, they were only down by like 4%. But they observed a 58% reduction in the development of type 2 diabetes. So people progressing from pre-diabetes to diabetes uh, a 58% reduction in that. So even though they only lost a modest amount of weight over a few years, they still experienced very large improvements in, in, in health, at least when it comes to, to type two diabetes development. And so, um, I, I think that, um, okay. So, so that said, I think understanding that food intake and body weight are regulated is a very important piece of getting the most out of diet and lifestyle interventions. So, you know, if, if you don't understand that those things are regulated, you might think that weight loss is easy. All you have to do is just choose to eat fewer calories. You know, you could just count your calories and mm -hmm. cut them by a third or cut them by half and then you lose weight. No problem right? I mean, that should be easy mm -hmm. if there's no regulatory system pushing back. And, uh, and you can do that. And in fact, if you're able to stick with it, it will even work. But the problem is that you get a lot of pushback from these regulatory systems. Mm -hmm. So once your, your fat mass starts to drop, your leptin levels drop, and then that's a signal to your brain that says that uh, your fat mass is dropping and your brain will initiate what I call a starvation response. It'll kick in hunger. It'll kick in increased interest in food. 
um, it'll start to slow your metabolic rate. And it's, it's this coordinated behavioral and physiological response designed to resist weight loss and regain fat. And so my perspective is instead of setting up a, a situation where you're going to be struggling against these regulatory systems, it's better to understand them and try to work with them and possibly even recruit them to help you. And so there are some strategies that I think have that effect. They either um, impact the set point directly or somehow are working around the set point. So for example, um, eating a higher protein food is one way of doing that. You increase your protein intake. What you observe there is that people will spontaneously reduce their calorie intake on a high protein diet without being asked to reduce their calorie intake without counting calories. It just happens as a result of the impact on these regulatory systems of that higher protein. Uh, another example is macronutrient restriction. So just cutting back on carbohydrate or cutting back on fat has a similar effect. Um, physical activity, regular physical activity can impact, I think, the, the set point to some degree and causes better regulation of, of energy intake. Um, and then I think another thing that's really helpful is um, modifying your food environment so that you're not receiving cues that are constantly stimulating your uh, motivational systems that um, plug into your eating drive. Because if you're, you know, um, if you're constantly surrounded by food cues that are pushing you to eat, you are triggering those non-conscious brain systems that generate your eating drive. And if you don't want to eat, let's say that's not consistent with your diet goals for yourself, you're going to have to exert willpower to combat those urges. And that's the situation that you don't want to be in. So eliminating those cues, the visual cues, the proximity, the um, smell cues of tempting food from your food environment. So those are just some some ideas. Definitely. I want to ask you about willpower in just a second because I just saw a great post by one of my friends on Instagram about that. So I'll ask you in just a second. Um, but I also want to say real quickly that this is one of the reasons that we don't tie um, our fitness, like our exercise routine and necessarily what we eat to our weight and to our health, because they are somewhat all, they are all tied together, but they're all somewhat independent. And people tend to have this, um, all or none mentality, unfortunately, where they are already, um, not quote unquote in a healthy state or they're obese. And they're like, Oh, what does it matter? If, uh, if it's all pessimistic, if it's all tied together, then I can't even do anything about it. And no, you're mentioning that there are unique characteristics and unique benefits to exercising regularly, to eating a varied diet full of vegetables, fruits, maybe for, um, specifically eating higher protein, it could still help. There's so many independent health benefits. So this is why we don't all marry them together. Now back to willpower. For some reason, our society has a huge emphasis on willpower. They say, if you cannot um, adhere to this diet, like let's say there's an online coach, which happens unfortunately way too often. There's an online coach that gives someone a diet um, to lose weight and the client doesn't. And then all of a sudden they just blame this client has poor willpower. 
what is it with us and willpower? And is there, what can we do to enhance our willpower? Is there anything we can do about it? Just what's your take on willpower? Yeah. I mean, it's a thing. Willpower is a thing that people have that can help them achieve their goals. It's just not, it's not a steamroller that can steamroll over every other brain system we have. You know, we have regulatory systems in our brains, you know, just I'll talk about appetite a little bit because that's something that I'm familiar with. We have regulatory systems that push us to eat a certain amount and you don't have to eat that much. You can choose to eat less, you know, you can exert willpower and eat less, but you are literally, that's literally one part of your brain fighting against another part of your brain. And is that really the situation we want to be in for, you know, the long term? Is that a sustainable situation? And can you even win? I mean, you could probably win for a day. You could win for a week. Maybe you could win for a month. Could you win for a year against those, you know, non-conscious brain systems that don't agree with what you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. I think the evidence suggests most people cannot win for, you know, a year or multiple years. And so I think finding ways to work with those systems is a better approach than, you know, struggling against them and then eventually most people not succeeding. Um, so it's not that willpower isn't, uh, you know, doesn't exist or is totally ineffective. I just think that people overestimate how impactful it is and how much you can rely on it in a situation like this. I mean, these systems, these non-conscious brain systems, they're not designed to be overridden. They're very compelling. I mean, you can override them for, again, for, you know, a meal or a week or maybe even a year, but they're just going to wear you down. And that's what, that's what happens. You know, you, you look at people who went through the show, The Biggest Loser, for example, mm -hmm. they have an incredible amount of pressure on them, right? During that show. And, you know, they're able to do incredible things in terms of their energy balance, energy in versus out, and they lose a ton of weight. But then what happens when they leave the show? Most of right them re regain a lot of that weight. And so, you know, once they're not in that situation where they're under a tremendous amount of pressure and they're back in their regular lives again, and they have these regulatory systems barking at them every day, all day to do something different than what they consciously want to do, those systems just aren't designed to be ignored. You know, this, the system that is activated when you try to diet is a starvation response. It's a physiological and behavioral and motivational program guided by non-conscious parts of your brain that is trying to protect you against starvation, which was historically a, a grave threat to your survival and reproductive success. And so um, I think that it's... Um, it's important to think about it in that context. So, you know, it's not that willpower doesn't matter, but 
it's better to exert a little bit of willpower and a little bit of planning in advance to set up a situation where you're not having to chronically apply large amounts of it. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventedmedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. All right. So we have been talking about a variety of influences and factors that go into someone's desire to eat, into their kind of cues of what they're putting into their mouth. We've discussed things from the neuroscientific perspective, for example, our satiety, our urges to eat, um, some even some responses to us eating foods. We've talked about some external factors such as having apps like Uber Eats, um, all these different apps out there about like a Dunkin' Donuts or McDonald's on every single corner, um, just impulses to eat, to eat. It doesn't sound like we're going to get all of them to ever go our way. Like we're not going to ever be able to move this McDonald's and say, I don't want this here anymore. And it's sometimes very difficult to choose where to live because you can't just say, I'm not going to live anywhere where there's a McDonald's. It's almost impossible, right? Are there certain things to prioritize you think that would influence our weight more than others? Like, for example, is it more important to move somewhere away and do the food environment type of thing versus modifying your internal cues? Or is it all all just kind of go together? So are you talking about on a societal level or on an individual level? Let's go on an individual level first. We'll save save the societal for a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there is a priority list, but I think it all goes together. So, I think there are multiple factors that are important. I think the types of foods that cross your lips are important. You know, we talked about some things about food composition earlier, like, uh, protein content. There's also fiber content. There's, um, calorie density. In other words, calories per gram. Um, those are things that, and there's the palatability, the, the enjoyment value of the food. Those are all things that impact, um, your eating drive as well as how much satiety or fullness you experience per calorie that you eat. So those are things that can impact your food intake. There's also your food environment, which I think is, is very important. So food environment, I think is probably the main thing that's changed corresponding with the development of the obesity epidemic since the 1980s. Um, And then I think physical activity is important too. I don't think physical activity causes a lot of weight loss, but I think it's probably more powerful in preventing weight gain to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's also probably more powerful with weight loss maintenance than it is in weight loss per se. Definitely. Uh, I can agree with that. I would say food environment is probably the biggest thing for myself. I lost around 70 to 80 pounds. I have a podcast with one of my um, co-hosts previously that we kind of discussed our different journeys. And I think for both of us that that was our primary thing where once we kind of built a kind of different environment that we fell into different patterns and we didn't have the urge to like, oh, there's a cookie in the car, but let me go eat one. Can't just have one or you have to have two, three, that kind of thing. So it was definitely very important. Um, I want to also ask you, Lee, you mentioned a little bit about our food environment and how that's changed since the 1980s, even previously, maybe a little bit, especially since our ancestral days, as some people love to point out on uh, social media. Um, but also people tend to blame specific nutrients. They say it's the sugar. 
They say it's the fat. No one says it's the protein, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but what do you think about this? And is there something to specifically blame for the obesity epidemic? Like it was that, or is it kind of all once together, once again, going together? Yeah. So I don't think there's any single thing we can blame the obesity epidemic on and certainly not a specific nutrient. Um, but if we look at, so the first point I want to make is that the obesity rate has been increasing for a long time, even long before the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's just been a slower process up until somewhere in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, but if you look back at obesity rate, the data are not real good, but from what we have obesity rates in, uh, around 1900, there are something like one twentieth of what they are today. So huge, huge differences in, uh, in the rates of obesity and particularly class two or class three obesity. So people who are above body mass index of 35 Mm -hmm. or 40. So people who really have uh, very pronounced obesity, that was, I mean, virtually non-existent back then. And so, um, the reason I say this is because, you know, this has actually been a process that's been in the works for a long time, I think. And if you look over that period, what you see is a very um, profound shift in how we interact with food in the United States. And, and all that I was talking about, that's all U- U.S. data because that's the data I know the best. But basically, the big picture is we have outsourced the preparation of food from our own kitchens to the food industry and restaurants. So if you look at what people did around 1900, almost all food was purchased in stores as single ingredients made into food in the home and consumed there. Whereas now the majority of our food expenditures is actually on food that we eat away from home. And even the food we do eat at home, a lot of that is food that's processed that we're just buying fully prepared and bringing home and eating. So there's been a very profound shift in how we interact with food. And one aspect of that that corresponds particularly well with the obesity epidemic is a large increase in snacking. So if you look if you look at um, calorie intake, it goes up around the time the obesity epidemic uh, emerged. And those, that increase in calories can be accounted for by the increased in, increase in snacking frequency that occurred. So people started eating more of these kind of processed savory snacks between meals. People started drinking sugar-sweetened beverages more between meals. That was also part of that change. And that was all in coordination with a huge marketing effort from the food industry that occurred over that period of time that started in the mid seventies and ramped up through the mid eighties and nineties. And so essentially we had this massive change in food culture and how we interact with food that corresponded with this huge increase in food marketing that, um, some people would hypothesize is a major driver of the obesity epidemic. And I think that story makes sense. Um, 
But, you know, we don't have randomized controlled trials where we rerun U.S. history while manipulating variables. So, you know, this is, this is you know, us guessing at what happened based on, based on the evidence that we have. But I think, you know, there, there are all kinds of ideas of, you know, it was all caused by sugar or it was all caused by carbs. I think those are two, you know, of the more popular ideas that are prevalent right now. If you go back and look at the U.S. diet in 1909, 1920, it was very high in carbohydrate. 1900, it was very high in carbohydrate and it wasn't whole grains. It was mostly white flour and <laughs> it was a fair amount of sugar too, actually. The amount of sugar that we're eating right now is not that much higher than what people were eating in the 1920s in the U.S., and again, that was not like they weren't chewing on pieces of sugar cane. We're talking about white sugar. So, and I'm not saying that's good for you. I think that they had a pretty bad diet back then in many ways, but it wasn't giving them obesity and it wasn't leading to the types of diabetes rates that we're seeing today. So I think, I think basically that, you know, people want to have like the nutrient that they can pin stuff on. It's not that simple. If you look at the literature overall, what you see is that the most fattening place to be is right in the middle, a diet that is rich in both carbohydrate and fat. If you reduce either one of those, you get a diet that's more slimming in animal models of obesity and in humans. So in humans, the low-fat diets cause weight loss in people with obesity. Low-carb diets cause weight loss in people with obesity. And we could argue about which one is more effective, but they both cause weight loss. And so we need some kind of model that explains that. Um, and that model is not carbs or fattening or fat is fattening. You know, exactly. that's a model that's that simple just cannot account for the evidence that we have in both humans and animal models of obesity. And so like, I mean, carbs are fattening, fat is fattening, but what the fattening place to be is right in the middle where you're eating lots of both of those and where they're being combined into these extremely calorie dense, delectable dopamine stimulating combinations that trigger our eating drive and that have a very low level of satiety because of their physical and chemical properties. And that, that definitely plays out in the real world. No one's getting fat eating sweet potatoes, which are 100% carbohydrate. No one's getting fat drinking pure oil. I mean, maybe there's someone out there doing that, but for the most part, it's the combination that makes them, as you're saying, hyper palatable, gives you that dopamine rush and always feels good. And this is why in restaurants, they always add a fair amount of fat to kind of all of the food that you eat. So if anyone's out there kind of consciously eating the food at restaurants, trying to track your macros, always overestimate on fat because that's what make things hyper palatable, especially if you're eating like fries or any other sort of rice. There's a lot of butter in that as opposed to when you cook at home. That's why it always tastes better. That's one little thing there. Number two is that it sounds like it's a process of commercialization, whereas companies and fast food companies and just restaurants in general try to raise their profits and just make more money that they're going to make their foods more palatable so that people keep coming back so that people say, oh, this food tastes really good. And it doesn't look like that's going to change at any point. Sure, we have these um, healthy, quote unquote, fast food places now that um, promise to be a healthier alternative to McDonald's. However, they still provide relatively hyper palatable foods that contribute to excess um, caloric intake. 
Is there anything we're gonna we can do about that? Because in my eyes, that trend's only going to continue. And right now, as you're mentioning at the beginning of this, we're at around 42% prevalence of obesity. And I don't see the number slowing down. So what do we do about that? Yeah, I think it's really tough because, you know, we live in a capitalist system. And I think there's many ways in which that's good, but you know, it's there's a race in the food industry there's this brutal competition where if you you know you're trying to sell as much as possible of your product and if it's not extremely appealing to customers it's going to lose out to the next product that is extremely appealing and a lot of what people are buying are today are processed foods right so you have this combinate this uh competition happening between processed foods where only the ones that are most that are the most appealing survive. So these foods are being selected in the marketplace based on their impact on our mo- on our brain motivational systems, right? Exactly. So they they're being selected for the foods that maximally drive purchase and consumption behaviors. And I don't think these food industry corporation i don't think they're trying to make people you know have obesity i just think (laughs) i hope not (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think there's anybody like you know like smoking cigars and talking about how they can drive the obesity epidemic but i do think that it's a natural consequence of selecting for foods that are that maximally stimulate purchase and consumption behaviors because that is what's being selected for in the competitive marketplace right so And then it happens to be true that foods that are maximally motivating to our purchase and consumption behaviors also tend to have properties that produce low satiety per calorie. And so I think these are the kinds of foods that we're highly motivated to purchase and eat. And then they don't, uh, like we tend to overconsume them because per calorie, they just don't create sense physical sensations of fullness to the same degree and i say physical sensations that's of course all those are sensations generated by the brain based on feedback from your gastrointestinal tract um so so yeah i think this is a very difficult situation because what are you going to do like are we going to you know just dictate that corporations can't sell these types of foods you know are we going to reverse the the forces of capitalism um i think i think it's a very challenging situation and i don't i i don't think it's i don't think nothing can be done i think we could actually have a big impact but i think that the types of regulations that would be required to have a big impact are not palatable to the public or to the government i think people would recoil i think it would be viewed as authoritarian Um, so I'm kind of pessimistic about like overhauling our food system sufficiently to reverse the obesity epidemic. That said, I don't think that nothing can be done. I think there are some things that are potentially promising that we could try. I think, you know, there are certain foods that I think pretty much everyone agrees are unhealthy, like sugar sweetened beverages, for example, I, I think, you know, everybody, there's not a lot of debate about whether (laughs) those are healthy or not. Right. So things that everybody can get behind and say, maybe we could impose a tax on those things. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes I hear people say they're like, it's punishing poor people. I'm like, you know what punishes poor people is diabetes. <laughs> Medical costs associated with diabetes. Absurd. Yeah. I, I really like don't see much of a counter argument yeah. to taxing a food like sugar, sweetened beverages. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that um, there are some approaches that we could take that I think would be helpful. I think around food advertising, I think, you know, food advertising to children, like, can we, can we agree that that's not <laughs> a great thing? I, there's already limits on it. Um, and in the UK, I know they, they've placed limits on it, but like, I think there, you know, there are things that I think most people can get behind. Um, but the reality is that most people, the average person today is eating over 200 calories more than the average person was before the obesity epidemic. So we're not going to reverse that by beating around the bush with half measures. You know, if, if we want to cause that to go away, we're going to have to take very stringent measures. And I don't think those are going to be palatable to the average person. That said, I want to, I want to add that we have, you know, the medical management of obesity is radically changing right now as a result of these new drugs. So I am optimistic on that front. I think that um, even though I have a hard time seeing the obesity epidemic reverse as a result of public health measures, maybe we could chip away at it a little bit. And then coupled with better medical management of obesity, maybe we could catch people early and say, okay, we've identified this person as being on a trajectory where, you know, they're soon going to be mm -hmm. on, have obesity. Let's put, let's offer them, uh, one of these new drugs and maybe we can stop them from progressing and, you know, help them achieve their own body composition goals more easily. Definitely. I'll ask you a little bit more about the medical aspect of this in just a second, kind of where healthcare providers and physicians kind of play into this. But I want to ask you and kind of bring up one other thing, which is uh, on a systems level, we're kind of pessimistic because now you get into political views, you get into lobbying. There's just so much to get through that I don't also think or foresee any changes coming that way. Um, but one of the things that I have been kind of aware of, I'm not as well read on this data. I can't like pull studies out of my bank right now. I'll get there at some point. But I I have seen some data, some promising things where um, people who are encouraged to kind of pick out their own fresh fruits, vegetables, who are taught how to cook tend to have a lower uh, caloric intake and they're able to prepare these foods at home. I think there's a trial, uh, another guest of mine was mentioning, where they have people from lower socioeconomic incomes that don't necessarily have access and can't purchase all these things for themselves that were not only provided these things, but also taught how to cook and they tended to have lower caloric intakes and quote unquote better diets. So I think that is something that seems to be promising. I don't know how much you know on the data on this. You probably know a lot more than me, but it seems that cooking is probably a gateway at a community level, at least where you have community cooking classes. Like these are the vegetables this is how you would prepare this vegetable. So now I can make vegetables more palatable instead of having rice from the restaurant where they have like a whole stick of butter in there. You make your own rice, which will still taste pretty good. And then you can have a side of vegetables or something. Do you know much data on that? Um, it's not an area that I've been following very closely. From what I understand, the data is pretty thin that interventions like that 
can have a substantial impact on obesity rates. Um, I think that, um, I mean, I think there is potential in those areas. I just don't think from what I understand, and again, I'm not really on the cutting edge, but from what Mm -hmm. I understand, the evidence isn't very strong in terms of direct impacts on actual obesity rates. Um, but you know, looking back, like cultural societal changes are what got us here. Right. And so maybe cultural and societal changes could take us back. I don't know. Maybe, exactly, maybe yeah. over time we will develop kind of a, a better cultural immune system against this fattening food environment that we live in. And maybe people will, you know, be able to develop better habits and norms around, around diet. Um, yeah, but I, I think I'm just we're talking about, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're talking about large changes that would need to be implemented generationally. And, mm-hmm. I'm open. I'm open to stuff like that. I mean, it would be a satisfying solution, um, but I think you know, the big question: Would it work? Is is one that I think is unanswered. Agreed. And I ask this because this kind of ties into the next question is we talked about from an individual level, how it's often very difficult to kind of uh, overcome urges, overcome societal pressures, cues to eat. We talked about how from a large systems level, we have food advertising, we have hyper palatable foods that kind of survive in a capitalistic system and market. But then we have kind of this little space of we have kind of communities, we have physicians and we have healthcare outreach to these communities. And this is kind of where I would fit in as a healthcare provider and a physician where what can I do for not only my patient in front of me, but for the community at large that I serve, let's say my hospital is part of this zip code, what can we do as a hospital to kind of improve it? So where do you see this kind of fitting in? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that I am, um, more optimistic about preventing the development of obesity through diet and lifestyle than I am about reversing existing obesity. I think once a person has that elevated set point, that becomes very challenging to reverse that. It's probably easier. I don't have strong evidence to support this, but I would think it would be probably easier to prevent that from happening in the first place rather than try to reverse it. Um, And so to me, you know, anything you could do to just try to, uh, cultivate healthy diet, healthy habits, regular physical activity in the community would, would be health, would be helpful. So, you know, teaching cooking skills, not putting a stick of butter in in your rice. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, teaching, teaching people how to prepare whole foods and emphasizing the importance of that, um, limiting added fats, added sugars, um, refined carbohydrates, um, and trying to build physical activity into the day, building a supportive food environment where they're not going to be tempted in their own home or at workplace all the time. And, you know, trying to normalize like, not having donuts in the break room every day. <laughs> um, and yeah, so those are some ideas. I tend to think a really important concept is trying to build physical activity into your 
daily routine such that it's not something you have to think about. So have it, for example, as your commute, if you can, or part of your commute, you know, some people drive, you know, they have to drive a long way, but maybe you could park a few miles away and walk the rest or bike the rest. Um, so those are just some ideas. Uh, but I think, you know, on the treatment side now, of course, we have these incredible, this incredible new tool, the semaglutide or, or Wegovy, and that opens a lot of doors, I think, um, as well as, you know, the other options, bariatric surgery, and then um, diet and lifestyle programs, I think, have also um, experienced some evolution and refinement over time in terms of being able to provide a cost-effective platform that supports people in um, adhering to healthy diet and lifestyle behaviors. Definitely. I think one of my previous biases had been um, kind of more towards caloric restriction, willpower, you can lose weight. Um, I, like I mentioned, I did lose a significant amount of weight and like, if I could do it, anyone can do it. Why not? But then you realize when you look through literature, when you gain clinical acumen, when you actually start seeing patients, no, this isn't what happens. So my personal bias has kind of been moving more towards that treatment option, as you were talking about, Wigivy. Um, and now I also saw you tweeting about the recent drug, which was uh, Trisapatide, I believe. Um, yeah. And there's just so many promising results. And also bariatric surgery, which we had uh, Dr. Austin Chang, who is the director of bariatric um, endoscopy, I believe, at a Jefferson who talked about it. We talked a lot about that with him. I think there's just so much going on on the treatment side now. But as you're saying, um, this is the preventive medicine podcast. So I think uh, what we can do right now to promote better healthy behaviors uh, for parents so that they can kind of instill them in their children. So that is that generational thing that gets passed down. So we're not every Friday getting fast food from someplace. Instead, let's build a culture of every Friday night we sit down as a family and we like cook food ourselves and we have that. I think those are very valuable and I think that's something that I love that you brought up. Yeah, I think I think that is important. Like if you do the cross-cultural comparisons, I mean, look at the obesity rates in France. Look at the obesity rates in Italy. Look at the obesity rates even in Canada. They're They're lower and in some cases, much lower. Japan, you have, you know, obesity rates are way lower in Japan. But if you look at Japanese Americans, people who emigrated to the United States, um, they get obesity at nearly the same rates as people who are European descent. And so it's not a genetic thing, or at least it's not mostly a genetic thing. It's mostly a, a cultural thing. So I do believe culture is very important. The, the only thing is how do you change culture? That's, that's the tough part, you know? If only. Um, yeah. I think these are the countries I mentioned. These are all countries. Well, I don't know. Maybe with the exception of Canada, I don't know <laughs> as much about Canada. But like France, Italy, Japan, like they're countries that have a very strong, very strong food cultures and traditions, right? And so... The United States is not like that. We're just kind of like a mishmash uh, and uh, of, of different cultures. And there's not like strong, like cultural norms about food. Like I think at, if anything, it would be speed. Speed seems to be the main difference based on my travels, at least where everything yeah. you want here to be done Speed, fast. efficiency, exactly. low cost. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, there's not as much of a, of a focus on, uh, you know, like in France, there's a million rules around food. And here it's like many households don't even sit down for a meal together. They just kind of like graze all day. Exactly. So we should be like abhorrent, totally abhorrent <laughs> to most French people. And so like, yeah. So anyway, I'm just agreeing with you. I think culture actually is really important. Um, it's just, it's hard to quantify, it's hard to study, and it's hard to modify. And this is exactly why I wanted you on the podcast, because when people think of nutrition, they think of like we're talking about the calories in, calories out, that kind of thing. And then sometimes people will go to the neuroscience, but it's seldom that someone starts talking about the culture behind food and how that impacts people's dietary choices, the obesity rates in various countries. And I really appreciate having you on the show for that. We got one last question for you, and it's probably the most annoying question that I'm going to ask you. And that is if you are at your local Starbucks or your local roaster getting a cup of coffee and someone recognizes you says, Hey, Dr. DNA, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in two minutes? I would say eat a lower calorie density, whole food based diet and get physical activity every day if you can, or almost every day. Perfect. That's way less than two minutes. Coffee is ready. Um, where can people find you? What do you want people to know about yourself? I'll make sure all the links are everywhere. I'll put it in the intro so that people know where to find you. So I'm most active on Twitter. I'm at S-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. So S-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. I have a website called um, stephanguyenne.com. And I also have, uh, if you're interested in reading the uh, expert book reviews that uh, my organization publishes, Red Pen Reviews. That's at redpenreviews.org. And once again, all of those links will be provided in the show notes and throughout Instagram, wherever I post all this stuff. So once again, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did as well. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.